0: Namibia is home to Africa's famous Skeleton Coast, where oceans of dunes meet oceans of waves. They run right into the sea. It's a very big place with a small population, and it also has huge amounts of natural resources. And as you might expect, everyone wants a piece of it. This is Al Jazeera Investigates Extra. I'm your host, Kevin Hurton. On this show, we take you inside Al Jazeera's biggest, most explosive investigations. A new series is coming, but in the meantime, we have a lot to dig into. In these extra episodes, I'll be sitting down with the journalists working in our investigative unit around the world, getting the backstory and updates on big stories that made waves. Stories like this one in Namibia. In December 2019, Al Jazeera's investigative unit released a documentary film called Anatomy of a Bribe. This led to multiple arrests, launched several criminal investigations, and has really sent shockwaves throughout the Southwest African country. It's available on YouTube, and I encourage you to watch it, but in the interest of time, this is how it all went down. This film takes you
1: inside a multi-million dollar corruption scandal. If the minister wants to get
0: paid bribes, you pay him bribes. The film continues to make headlines as new details continue to come to light about a multinational scandal centered around the country's fishing industry. The story begins with a whistleblower.
1: For five years, Johanna Stephenson worked for Iceland's biggest fishing company,
0: Sam Herry. The narration you're hearing is our reporter correspondent, Simon Bozeman.
1: His main role, he says, was to obtain lucrative fishing rights
2: in Africa by any means necessary. From 2012 to middle of 2016, I was paying bribes. I was paying illegal payments on behalf of somebody. They have probably made 120, 150 million US dollars out of it. But in 2016,
1: Johannes decided to blow the whistle. He resigned and left Samheri, but not before seizing over 40 gigabytes of emails, spreadsheets, photographs, and other company data. Johannes passed the documents to WikiLeaks, who gave them to Al Jazeera's investigative unit and Iceland's national broadcaster.
2: They are just robbing the resource of our African country for their own benefits, and they leave nothing left in the country. I knew I had to come forward. In
1: 2013, Johannes says he was asked to provide a payment for Fisheries Minister Bernard assau in return for securing fishing quotas. I gave him a sport bag full of cash. A year after the payment was made, Minister Assau appointed a new chairman of the National Fishing Corporation
2: of Namibia, known as Fish Corps. He made sure that majority of the fishing quotas goes to Samaria, even though some of the other companies were willing to pay higher price. The documents
1: reveal that Sam Harry made payments of over four and a half million US dollars. This looks very much like bribery. Sam Harry has some very difficult explaining to do.
0: Armed with leaked documents, in 2019, we began our own investigation to see how corruption in Namibia's fishing industry really works. Here to break it all down for us and talk about the impact in Africa and around the world is one of the documentary's producers, James Kleinfeld.
3: The story starts with Sam Harry one of Iceland's largest fishing companies with subsidiaries around the world, with an
0: annual turnover going into the hundreds of millions of euros a year. One of the things that I find interesting about the fishing industry, especially fishing from the Northern Hemisphere, is that they sort of started running out of fish a couple hundred years ago. You look at the Portuguese, you look at the Icelandic, you know, these are traditionally fishing communities and they started going south. And one of the places that they were going is off the coast of Africa, especially that Atlantic side. And Namibia is famous for having these incredible fishing grounds.
3: Indeed, yes, it's called the Beluga Current, and they share it with uh, Angola and uh, parts of South Africa as well. And so Namibia really represents for this Icelandic fishing conglomerate massively lucrative fishing grounds. Their profits have been estimated to be in hundreds of millions of dollars from their operations in
0: Africa, particularly in Namibia. Namibia has fish. It's a natural resource, so they regulate it. So how does that process work where they regulate who can fish in Namibia? So to understand
3: how they regulate the fishing industry, you also have to understand the independence movement. Namibia was, for most of the 20th century, subject to foreign rule until 1990.
2: To declare that Namibia is forever free. (laughs)
3: Now, as they emerge from apartheid rule, Namibia thought that it would be a good idea to escape this resource curse that many of its African neighbors were suffering, whereby there would be extremely rich in natural resources, and yet the people wouldn't see the benefits from the exploitation of those resources. And so they decided to make fishing into a right-based resource, which is that you have to, first of all, apply to become a right holder to be able to apply for a quota of fish. So there are stringent regulations about who can and can't earn a right. And so If you are a foreign company, the crucial thing is that you have to enter into what's known as a joint venture with local companies. So 51% of your company needs to be owned by Namibians. And they particularly prize the participation of historically disadvantaged communities, most notably the black African community in Namibia.
0: So this is a system that is on its face meant to make sure that Namibian people profit off of their own resources, right? But what we're seeing in this documentary is that that started to fall down recently. And that's where this whistleblower comes in because he was from this company, this Icelandic fishing company, who was sent to Namibia specifically to try to game the system.
3: Exactly. What you have here is a, is a massive uh, multinational conglomerate with uh, multi-million dollar ships with significant know-how in the industry.
1: Samheri has developed into a fully integrated seafood
0: company with operations into fishing, farming, processing and sales.
3: They have uh, one goal, which is maximise profits and uh, minimise their tax burden on the local economy. When it comes to the regulation that 51% of the company needs to be owned by Namibians, well, you just find a local dealmaker who is happy to put their name onto a contract that says that on paper they own 51%. In fact, they're getting a much smaller cut of the profits. And in return, they aren't asking any questions. Okay, so there's a term for these guys. They're called sharks. The sharks are the power players in the Namibian fishing industry who swim around the Minister of Fisheries, Bernard Assau. When you're looking at the historic corruption that was revealed by Johannes Stephenson, the key people are actually family members of Bernard Assau. Samiri paid the money to the bank account of uh, James in Dubai. His cousin, James Hatwikulipi, was conveniently placed as the chairman of the board of Fishcore, which is the state run fishing company. The money was
2: for James to distribute further to the Minister of Fishery, to the other sharks,
0: and also possibly to the bigger politicians in the country. Building off of that, this might be too in the weeds, but I'm curious about what the role of Fish Corps is. You said it's a state-run fishing company.
3: Their primary goal, just like any other state-run enterprise around the world, is to generate income for the government. They are allocated a certain amount of fishing quota on an annual basis. Now, in theory, what they're supposed to do with that fishing quota is sell it to the highest bidder and thereby generating um, income for the government. Whereas actually what we see happen through the documents that were revealed by Mr. Johannes Stephenson was that FishCore was actually selling its highly lucrative uh, fishing quota to Sam Harry, And Sam Harry was below the table paying millions of dollars of bribes. With James as a head of Fish court
2: he made sure that the majority of the fishing quotas goes to Samhari.
0: One of the most fascinating parts of the story to me was a way to get around the restrictive amount of quotas for Sam Harry, and it was by opening up a new quota that was available to an Angolan fishing company.
3: Under Namibian law, it is the prerogative of the Ministry of Fisheries to decide who gets a right to fish off the coast of Namibia. Now they have to take into account many factors about the impact on the local economy, how many local Namibians you're hiring, how much tax you're paying, and so on. Now, of course, all of this wasn't good enough for Sam Harry. They needed access to larger fishing quotas and quick. And so what they did was they took advantage of a loophole in the Namibian Fisheries Act, which states that... The Ministry of Fisheries is allowed to allocate quota to companies that are the beneficiaries of a bilateral treaty with another country in what's known as the South
0: African development community. But that Angolan company wasn't actually controlled by anyone in Angola, right?
3: There was an individual who was technically Angolan, but he lived most of his time in Namibia. He was just born in Angola, actually. And that company itself was simply a shell company for another company that was itself a Namibian. And so it was just a paper fiction that allowed for the Namibian government to allocate quota to whoever it wanted via this sort of complex arrangement.
2: It was supposed to be beneficial for both Namibians and Angolans. But the true motivation was that the Sharks have found a way to
0: access quotas. I think most disturbing in this section of the film is the fact that that Angolan company, which was actually controlled by Namibian interests, these Sharks, was given a quota below market value. So the people are not getting the proper amount of money and then they're sending all of this other money off to companies that are accessible by people in the Namibian government. The figures
3: are quite astounding. Nearly 75% of the quota price that was supposed to be paid to even this sort of fake Angolan company was uh, sent offshore into a Dubai-based bank account, from which we have no idea where the funds ultimately ended, although Mr. Johannes Stephenson claims that that money was eventually passed on to uh, higher powers in the Namibian power elite. And then of the 25% that was paid into this Angolan company, we did actually manage to uh, get our hands on the banking records of this company. And we showed that of that money, a significant percentage of it ended up in the pockets of the country's now former Minister of Justice, Saki Shangala.
2: I have no recollection of money coming from any relationship with Sam Harry. You
1: didn't know that your company was receiving money from Sam Harry
2: subsidiaries? Well, I challenge you that we're, we, it received monies. Oh, I, I'll
1: show have you the you, bank statements Have you
0: seen the bank statements here? Which is shocking because it's going to the high, high levels of the government. It's also shocking because the whistleblower, and in the film you see this, there's direct involvement by the head of Sam Harry. We have quite a lot of uh, documentary evidence
3: provided by the whistleblower of a trip that was made by these Namibian power elite.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
3: they went up to Reykjavik to meet with the then CEO of Samheri, Mar Baldvinson. And at this meeting, Saki Shangala is pitching this idea of a bilateral agreement and it, it totally gets the approval of the leadership of Samheri. So you have this bilateral agreement between two African nations that's being discussed up in an office in Reykjavik, Iceland.
0: Right, and you see the pictures, they're all wearing snowsuits and smiling in the snow, and it's, it's such a winter scene. It's, it's really something. Okay, so armed with this information, we decide to do an undercover operation of our own. We're thinking
3: about, what do we do with this story? How do we take it further? Right. And so one of the things that we at the investigative unit are really specialists in is the use of our undercover reporters. Hey, can I check your cameras, just make sure everything's rolling okay I'm sure you guys already know that, but... Yep, right. OK. And so what we wanted to get was the people involved in the story that we see in the documents, we wanted to get them on camera we wanted to have video evidence of the sort of corruption that we only yet had uh, documentary evidence of. We used these documents as a bit of a blueprint as to how to enter into the Namibian fishing industry. We enlisted the help of some colleagues of ours, some Chinese colleagues, who uh, went in posing as uh, investors in the Namibian fishing industry.
1: So if I'm shaking your hand, I'm here. Are you getting me? Yeah. Okay. great. All right, guys, good
3: luck. And over a few weeks of negotiations, they eventually struck a deal with a local fishing executive who's called Saki Kadilla.
0: I think Saki Kadilla is a name that is important because this goes from Saki, who's the local businessman, directly to the minister, but then back to Saki again. These people are
3: extremely close. Saki
0: Kadila is one of the leading
3: executives in the Namibian fishing industry. We could find somebody in the ministry. That person is only for the influence. He was actually introduced to us by Sisa Manje, who is the uh, lawyer who represents all of the presidents of Namibia since independence.
2: If you want local partners, local business people, I can get you the right people to speak. That's my specialization, and I do that in
3: He's also representing the ruling party, the SWAPO party. So he's a key power broker in the country. Ever since independence, SWAPO, which stands for the Southwest African People's Organization, has won every single election, often with enormous margins and so not only do they have the executive and the legislative under their control but they have most of the municipalities under their control and indeed yes if you are a power
0: broker in the country more likely than not you're going to be a SWAPO member. So back to Saki you get a meeting with Saki and he can open the door to who really matters which is fisheries minister Bernardi So. The minister will, will let me know whatever plans he wants the crucial thing about the deal that was
3: struck with Sakikadilla was the fact that they engineered a deal with Mike Nikipunya, who's the CEO of Fishcorp, in exchange for a half a million US dollar payment to Mike Nikipunya. I should add via a shell company belonging to Sakikadilla, which raises the potential of money laundering. In exchange for that half a million US dollar payment, Mike Nikipunya, as the CEO of Fishcore, would then assure that this fake company that we have with our Chinese investors would be allocated a significant amounts of quota.
2: As long as I am with Fishcore for the next five years, we'll get quota for me.
3: So this is really corruption 101. You're looking at a cash payment to a state official in order to get him to give up state assets, bypassing the competitive tender process.
0: Then it ultimately has to build to a meeting with the big man, the man who can make the decision, and that is Bernardi So.
3: Exactly. And one of the striking things is that the very first meeting that our undercover operatives have with the Minister of Fisheries, he essentially asks our undercover operatives for a gift of an iPhone. He says... I hear that in China, you have these limited-edition dual-SIM iPhones.
1: It's only in China where you get iPhone, with
2: double SIM card.
3: And interestingly as well, at the end of the meeting, when he gives our undercover operatives his business card, he strikes out his work phone number and he adds his personal phone number and his personal email address. (laughs) Which, of course, wouldn't be accessible as a state official.
2: Thank
1: you, thanks.
0: Thanks. It's almost awareness of guilt. So then when you go to, you actually travel with him to Japan, and that's when he actually gets the iPhone, and then he has a request, a financial request. We found out
3: that he was going to be speaking at a conference on Japanese-African investments in Tokyo. So we follow him over there, and we go and have uh, dinner with him in a nice sushi restaurant. And at this meeting, yes, we give him the dual SIM iPhone. People are looking at us. We have to be careful. And then he broaches the idea that we could make some kind of a um, donation to the Swapo Party. There was an election coming up in a few months'
0: time, actually.
2: We want money, but we're, we're very, very
0: careful. I think he initially asked for 70000 for him, $100,000 for the party. He needs $70,000 for the party that hundred thousand and then he says, you know what, round it up to two hundred thousand. it two hundred to round It's my favorite moment. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So he
3: effectively asked for two hundred thousand US dollars. Now the question then arises, how are these Chinese investors going to pay these two, this two hundred thousand US dollars? Even though it's not strictly speaking illegal in Namibia for foreigners to invest in the local election campaigns, it's still not the best look for the Independence Party to be taking such large sums of money from investors in the local fishing industry. So they devise a scheme that would launder this election campaign through the trust account of um, none other than Sisa Amange, the personal lawyer of the Namibian president and also of the ruling party itself.
2: Once money comes in, I have given Saki the, the, the file with the money and Saki will know how to channel He has a very good relationship with the minister.
3: Now, when our Chinese investors discuss with their potential business partner, Saki Kadilla, how they're going to make this payment... Saki Kadilla instructs our Chinese investors to make this payment using a fake reference that would indicate that it's not a payment for an election campaign, but rather an investment in a local construction development. We're using this company because we don't want anybody else uh, asking questions. We can't mention anything
2: about the minister or agency manager.
3: So what you have here is not only are they willing to take large sums of money from foreign investors, but they're willing to do that
0: using potentially illegal means uh, via money laundering. Okay, so let's talk impact. This thing goes off like a bomb in Namibia immediately.
3: The day after the revelations emerge in the media, the two ministers in question, the Minister of Justice, Saki Shangala, and the Minister of Fisheries, Bernard Assau. Both resigned. But still we have a video I of you am you talking not about
2: uh, I, I am not involved in
3: Although it's debatable the extent to which they resigned themselves or whether the president asked them to leave, but it was a very politically sensitive time. It was a week before the country's national election, so this was a very embarrassing saga for the Namibian political elite of the Swapo Party. A week later. They are arrested on the day of the country's national elections, I should add. These two ministers are arrested along with their associates, the Hatwikulipi cousins, James and Tamsen. Yes, Together with Saki Shangala, the former minister of justice, James hatwikulipi and Tamsen Fati Hattuikulipi are linked to a corruption scandal in which they are accused of offshore money laundering and inappropriate... And they have been in custody ever since. What about Sam Harry? Shortly after the film was released, Sam Harry took steps to distance itself from both the whistleblower, Johanna Steffenson, and also from its now former CEO, Thorsten Mar-Baldvinsson. He stepped aside pending an investigation, an internal investigation conducted by a Norwegian auditing firm. But the interesting thing is the way in which you see a, a really different response in Namibia and in Iceland. Namibia has actually been very forthcoming with arresting, charging the allegedly corrupt actors that we uh, portray in the film whereas in Iceland yes there has been the beginnings of an investigation but things are going much slower You saw as well in both countries a uh, mass protest In Namibia, you had hundreds of people were marching down to the offices of the Anti-Corruption Commission. Once it emerged, that the Anti-Corruption Commission had actually been investigating this alleged corruption in the fishing industry for a couple of years now. And um, they demanded the resignation of the director, Paulus Noah. (laughs) This is a country that actually doesn't have much of a reputation for, for political protests as such. But since the revelations have come out, one of the most beautiful things is that you've seen this real liberation of people to kind of speak their minds, to take into their hands their, their country's destiny. They've been demanding that the proceeds from their
0: country's assets is shared equitably. SWAPO has unified control of the government, this kind of story may be an outgrowth of that unified control and having an opposition party that has a chance to win and maybe even has a chance to govern might be a good thing for the democracy. Do you think that this could change the political dynamics? Do you think that Swapo could have a real challenger because of some of this stuff?
3: This story that came out shortly before the country's election did have an immediate impact on the electoral successes of the ruling Swapo party. The last presidential election happened in 2014, and the uh, Swapo candidate, Hage Gengob, got a, a whopping 86% of the vote.
0: But this could be a tough election for President Hage Gengob, who's running for a second term. A corruption scandal involving the country's fishing industry could taint his party's image.
3: And then this time around, the vote share of SWAPO was reduced to 56%. So you have a 30-point drop in the immediate aftermath of the revelations.
0: So i got full mandate, by the way. I
3: heard people saying it's reduced and so on. I think this really shows the way in which the historic ruling party of the country, SWAPO, has seen its legitimacy
0: waning and waning. There's no doubt that this story had a huge impact there. The hashtag was fish rot, and you can see that on Twitter. Money. A well known artist in the country wrote a reggae song starring Al Jazeera Investigative Unit.
3: Indeed, he's a singer and public figure in Namibia called Boli Mutseng. And he made this song that kind of focuses on the figure of Cezanne Amanje being this kind of high-placed power broker in the country and yet who's being accused of uh, some really serious money laundering. We
1: can make soup from the fish bones And make poverty look like they don't know how to do it Amanje
2: got the loan in his bank account
3: the implication that uh, if you want to clean your money, if you want to launder it and, and, and you know get money into the
0: country that's dirty, you pass it through CISA's bank account. James Kleinfeld, producer for Al Jazeera's investigative unit, my colleague in London and my friend, thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Kevin. Real pleasure. This episode was produced by me, Kevin Hertson, along with James Kleinfeld and the show's executive producer, Joe DeFries. It was edited by Leo Safianis. Sound mix by TVC Soho. Hassan Romani and Natalia Aldana handles our social media. Phil Reese is Al Jazeera's director of investigative journalism. Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll see you next time.